You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. The signs of the coming Antichrist, who the Orthodox Church teaches will be a Jew, are manifest. Will the Gentiles convert to Judaism en masse? No, I'm not saying this at all. It is Judaism and its effects, voting the minds of the masses via Jewish monopoly of the media, affairs of state, and academia that fixes the Jewification of the Western world as the all-encompassing force of the apocalypse to come. This force, where all things Jewish mesmerize the masses, will be the order of the Antichrist, whose first sacrificial rite will be to strike his seal deep into the wrists and foreheads of the willing and the unprepared. The task of the Orthodox Church is to prepare its people for this sure and certain religion of the future. For Judaism and its effects has already done its deadly work, where even the elect, for fear of the Jews, are allowing themselves to be deceived. Here's Basil and Hey everybody and welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name is Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 074. 074. 074. Well, we want to welcome back Chris White to the program. And if you're not familiar with his work by now, you definitely ought to be. He's the producer of several videos, including David Icke Debunked, Ancient Aliens Debunked, which now has been viewed over probably 5 million times, probably closer to 10 million, uh, if it's my guess. Um, my personal favorite... Just thrown out. Just thrown out big numbers. Numbers. Um, <laughs> my personal favorite, the pre-Wrath Rapture, the Rapture Puzzle Solved with Matthew 24. Uh, he's also the mastermind behind StopSleepParalysis.org, as well as the Revelations Radio Network. He's the host of the podcast's Bible Prophecy Talk and Nowhere to Run, and he's the author of several books now, including Should Christians Keep the Sabbath, Sleep Paralysis, What Is It and How to Stop It, Mystery Babylon, When Jerusalem Accepts the Antichrist, Daniel 7, A Commentary, and most recently, False Christ, Will the Antichrist Claim to Be the Jewish Messiah? We want to welcome back the man who put us on the map, Chris White. Chris, how you doing? Hey, Gons and Basil, it's a pleasure to be here on the Landmark 74th episode of Canary Cry Radio. Yeah. Uh, so, no, it's great to be back. It's always a pleasure to be on with you guys. And I should clarify that uh, book about the Sabbath, Should Christians Keep the Sabbath, the subtitle is um, uh, A Refutation of Seventh-day Adventist Theology, just to sort of, uh, didn't want to, you know, uh, yeah, you know what I mean. Didn't want to call that into question too much. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, welcome back. Good to have you back. Episode 74 only comes around once. <laughs> um, okay. So let's see here. I just want to let everybody know. And we, you know what, Gons and Chris, we've had this talk before the show here. And this won't be any surprise to you. But to everybody listening out there, you know, I just kind of want to have a heartfelt talk about drugs. I am currently in a completely empty house uh, with no coffee maker, and it's 8.30 in the morning, okay? So if you are tuning in and you're like, oh, Basil's going to be wild and crazy, let's hear what he has to say, you're going to be sorely disappointed, all right? (laughs) Most of what happens, most of my actions are fueled by a little thing called caffeine. 
So there you go. Just keep that in mind. Uh, this is all me, baby. All right. <laughs> yeah, I sympathize with that. You have you have my uh, complete sympathy there. I don't Thank know you. what uh, that was what actually. To do. That was the point. It was kind of just a call to sympathy around the world. I just want people to like pity me and you know pray for me. So there you go. But enough about me, right? We're here for a reason, Gonzo. That's right. Yes. Okay. So, Chris White, you've been quoted as saying you never want to write a book. What led you to suddenly publish like eight books? <laughs> well, it started with um, uh, just being. Uh, I, there's this um, thing I listen to that uh, talks about the importance of. If you've produced something and I like in terms of writing a script or whatever for videos, it's just so easy to turn that into a podcast and, uh, you know, and therefore publish that script as a book. The idea behind it was ultimately just to because when I first started doing videos, I did it because I was frustrated because um, I felt like just doing podcasts was only reaching the people that listen to podcasts. And there was a, an I, the, the growing uh, sense that there were people that just wouldn't learn anything if they didn't uh, see it in a video, which I sympathize with because that's I'm, you know a lot like that too. So I had to figure out how to make videos in order to uh, to get the information that just I was burning a hole in my uh, my uh, heart, as it were, to people. And at that time, it was various issues or whatnot. And the same basic thing happened with books. Um, the There is a certain segment of people that won't uh, learn anything unless it's published in a book. And that that uh, that group of people is actually relatively large still. Um, I don't know if it's more of the older generation or just a mix between both. But ultimately, it was it was that idea. And I I also. Uh, particularly said I wouldn't publish books about Bible prophecy <laughs> because uh, I didn't like the idea that once you publish something on uh, subjects like Bible prophecy, I felt like people out there were kind of stuck, had a, had a financial stake in their, their view about Bible prophecy, which made them, you know, made it very difficult to, for them to change their views and, and stuff, which I felt would be a, um, a hindrance to anything because I think that if if my experience with Bible prophecy has been any kind of measure of it, uh, changing in one's view as you learn more about uh, what the Bible has to say about it is sometimes necessary because it is a complicated subject. So when I started doing um, when I, I originally published Mystery Babylon as a book, it was a study that I had done a lot of work on. I never intended to publish it as a book. It was mostly just a video series, and it stayed a video series for like a year or something like that. And uh, it just seemed that uh, that sub that subject wasn't getting the kind of traction that I felt it deserved to, and it was already basically done. So, um, as in terms of writing, it just needed to be sort of looked over for for uh, proofreading and that kind of thing. And as easy as it was with Create Space, no uh, overhead or anything else like that, and Kindle and stuff like that, it just seemed like a no brainer. And then, uh, basically, I'd been doing the same thing with the Daniel podcast as well. I'd been, basically been writing it the whole time as I was doing a podcast series, and that was like, all right, well, there it is, too, so let's put it out and see if I can get this information out to further people, uh, to more people. It's certainly not a financial decision, I can tell you that. I've spent way more money uh, on all the aspects that go into publishing books, especially the, the later ones when I tried to be a little bit more 
professional and 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 hire good editors and stuff like that. It's a it's a money hemorrhaging thing more than it is a uh, you know maybe in in the far distant future I would see returns on it or something like that. But it's definitely not something you want to do if you're looking to be a a wealthy person. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a cash cow. <laughs> No, no. Yeah, well, that's good advice. Um, I'm writing my my first book now. I'm probably going to put in a caveat at the introduction or preface or something to say, "Hey, <laughs> my views can change," and you know that sort of thing. But um, right. Well, it's a good point because it's kind of like the whole problem with the uh, academic peeps out there, and even the secular ones. You know, they write a book and then they're just forced to defend it for so long. Or else, you know, it's their namesake. Right. And I think it depends a lot about um, motives and uh, a lot of things like that. Because one of the things that's been surprising me about this book is both in terms of the scholarly world, which I'm certainly not a part of, but uh, am in dialogue with some actual scholars in Bible prophecy that have done really, really uh, good work and papers in the major journals and stuff like that. And as well as more of the pop prophecy people who you know, have a lot of, in you know, in terms, emotionally at least, invested in, in some of the books that they've put out, have done an about-face on some of the things and publicly said, look, I was wrong, you know, and about this, and have gone back and changed, in some cases, their their, uh, their stuff. And so, I, I've been kind of proud of that. I know I certainly, I've just said in a recent podcast, I don't have any problem with uh, throwing this whole thing away and starting, starting from scratch, if that's what it needs to be. I, I love... I love getting challenged on stuff, and that's one of the things that I wanted to say in this interview uh, is that if you have any questions or whatever that uh, that you have that are challenging the theory that I'm going to propose or whatnot, I want to discuss those things, and I want to this not to necessarily be an interview of just what do you think, but uh, what do you think about this? Cool. Yeah, that's good. And I, I you know, I've been interacting with uh, my group of brethren over here that are vehemently against your view. So I actually asked them to come up with some questions. Uh, they came up with a, a whole slew of them. Not all of them I thought were particularly, uh, you know, necessary, but we will ask some of those questions. But, you know, as we jump into your book, False Christ, because it really, I think it's a great example of, uh, just in my opinion, you know, an, an example of scripture interpreting scripture. And it really does present a view that uh, right now is is pretty unpopular, and I have to be honest. When I actually first heard the premise behind it, I was kind of like, uh, I don't know, Chris. You know, I think you kind of went off the rails a little bit. But you know, after uh, listening to your book, and you know, I've been following your work for a long time. You know, one, I feel like we've been hanging out for for a while now because you've been talking into my ear for for several hours a day. Uh, number two, I would just want to say congrats on doing a really good job of sparking the conversation because I really think this, this work is hopefully was going to create some kind of a renaissance in the study of Bible prophecy, especially if people give it a fair shake, because I think a lot of people, like you said, have, you know, some preconceived notions and, and they don't want to necessarily give those up. And, um, you know, we'll get into some of that stuff, but just for the audience that's, you know, pretty unfamiliar with your work and, in, and especially in terms of false Christ, can you give us the, best scriptural evidence that you have that demonstrates that the Antichrist will present himself as the Jewish Messiah? Okay, so um, let me first back up a little bit and describe a little of what the the thesis is and what it isn't. The idea is that the Antichrist, when he shows up, 
will attempt to present himself as the Jewish Messiah, and that he's going to try his best to uh, appear as if he is instituting uh, what Jewish believers know as the Messianic Age, that is, what when the Messiah comes and, and rules from earth, the Jewish people believe that, and Christians believe that basically the same thing, but they call it the Millennial Reign. And the idea is that both Christians and Jews have remarkably similar views about this. They both are expecting when the Messiah comes back in the case of Christians or when the Messiah comes in the case of Jews, they're waiting for him to destroy the enemies of Israel, uh, the enemies of God particularly, and to which will occur in a great battle in Isaiah 13, 6 through 22, and of course in the Battle of Armageddon, to be followed by the Messianic Age in which... The Messiah will personally rule from the world with an iron rod, that idea. Also, Jerusalem will be made the capital city of the world. Both Christians and Jews believe that based on Isaiah 2, 1 through 4. A form of temple sacrifice will begin again. Not only Jews believe that, but Christians believe that as well in the millennium, though the Christians believe those sacrifices will mostly be memorial in their uh, nature, and that's uh, easily defensible. Uh, There's lots of verses that we could quote about that. And also a worldwide pilgrimage system to Jerusalem will also be a part of the uh, millennial reign. And the argument that I'm submitting is that what we know about the Antichrist is that in all the places, if you put them all together in the things that he's doing, he seems to be doing all those things. He's destroying the enemies of Israel in Daniel 11, 40 through 45. He is... Uh, even his seven-year covenant, I argue about that. His rebuilding of the temple, starting the daily sacrifices, his eventual stopping of those daily sacrifices and sitting in the temple to accept worship and making Jerusalem the capital city of the world, uh, his eventual promotion by the uh, false prophet, who I argue claims to be Elijah. And all of those things point to his goal being to deceive Christians and Jews primarily into believing that the Messiah has come, the Messiah is in fact God, and that he deserves the worship of the world. And I think an important part uh, of this is to also say that I'm not totally sure whether or not the Antichrist will claim to be the return of Christ, or if he simply claims that Jesus wasn't really the Messiah because he didn't fulfill the prophecies expected of him in the first century, such as delivering Israel from its enemies, making Jerusalem the capital city of the world, all the stuff that we Christians know that Jesus will do when he returns, but is the primary reason that Jews rejected him uh, in the first century, because he didn't do those things. And I actually think it's probably that he will claim to be the return of Christ, which I argue in the book, uh, particularly chapter 10, will the Antichrist claim to be Jesus? I lean toward that view, but I wrote the book uh, in such a way to... to, um, to leave both possibilities open. And I also talk about uh, Jewish beliefs about eschatology, though they are similar to Christians in some respects. When the Jews talk about the end times, more often than not, they're speaking of the traditions found in the Talmud and other rabbinic writings and things. And if you look closely at those traditions, it appears that what they are waiting for the Messiah to do are the same things that the Bible says the Antichrist will do. In other words, if the Antichrist does the things that the Bible says he will do, then it will be a very tempting thing indeed for Jewish people who have been told in their rabbinic writings and such that the Messiah will do those things. 
And so that's that's another claim. The other issue is Islamic eschatology, which I deal with at some length, which I believe their belief about things like the Mahdi and uh, and and Isa and all the stuff that they they believe is actually a ticking time bomb, if you will, that if the Antichrist does the things that the Bible says he will do, then those eschatological beliefs of of Islam will actually force them to to essentially fulfill Daniel 40 through 45, in which the Muslim world attacks the Antichrist, and then he the Antichrist destroys the Muslim world. In other words, because the Messiah, or rather, excuse me, uh, the Antichrist requires uh, everybody to believe that he has destroyed the enemies of Israel in order to bolster his claims to be the Messiah, who needs to destroy the enemies of Israel. He also needs to provoke a massive attack of the Muslim world in order to appear as if, well, he does destroy them, but uh, to appear as if he's the Messiah. And I think that that is the primary purpose for the beliefs that Islamic eschatology has. In regard to the biblical support for it, I go through a number of, uh, of issues. I think that Daniel 11.37 is really the only place that we can say with some certainty that he will be actually a Jewish person as opposed to simply claiming to be Jewish, which I op- leave the possibility open. But Daniel 11.37 says, He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women nor any other God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. In this case, the God of his fathers is a very interesting term. Some translations say the gods of his fathers, and their goal there is to essentially uh, uh, say that the the underlying Hebrew is plural, and it must be looked at as gods, where that is by no means certain. In fact, the word is simply Elohim, which is can be either plural or singular, depending on the context. And that is the reason why a lot of translations do translate it as God. But uh, in, in addition to that, we see that every usage of this phrase, God of his fathers, is a, a phrase that specifically is pointing to Yahweh. So several times this phrase is used, and it's always referring to Yahweh, not uh, any kind of pagan gods. So the, the Bible itself, if you want to look at it like interpreting how you should interpret this phrase, uh, the Elohim of his fathers, does translate it as singular in every other case, and never as plural. But that we could go more into that. John 5.43 seems to suggest that uh, the Jews will accept the Antichrist in the end time as their Messiah. Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. I also argue things like the seven-year covenant is not necessarily a peace agreement, though it certainly could be. I argue that since the 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 verse there in Daniel 9.27 is saying that he shall confirm a covenant for many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, suggests that the beginning of the week is him starting sacrifice and offering, which is not a new concept that's actually believed by most people. But I think that if you look at this in light of what Jewish people are expecting, that is, they believe that the prophecies of the quote-unquote new covenant, such as in Jeremiah 31, is really just that when the Messiah comes, he will finally allow them to start the daily sacrifice again, finally rebuild the temple, that reinforce the old covenant. In fact, I think that's essentially what this is saying. Confirm a covenant requires this to be a covenant that it was in existence prior to this, that he is now confirming. That word there is to make strong or to make firm so I, I argue that even that verse suggests that the covenant that he's making is 
one that in, obviously includes the daily sacrifices, but if you look at that through a Jewish lens, if a person shows up, builds a temple, lets them start the daily sacrifices on the temple mount again, then it would be uh, synonymous with the return of the Messiah in Jewish thought. And I would argue that that act will also create a massive war uh, because you can't sacrifice animals to Yahweh on the on the Temple Mount and anything in our current se- uh, setting without that sparking a ma- major u- unification of the Muslim world that would have to go, as a part of their eschatology, have to go uh, fight against is- Israel because of that. Which I uh, argue that the Antichrist it is would encourage because he his main thing is military might. You know, the world wonders at him essentially because who can make war with the beast? And we see in Daniel eleven forty five that uh, Daniel eleven in general and other places that he has empowered his war making capability either supernaturally or technologically or whatever. But no one is able to really withstand him. He defeats in war whoever he. Uh, desires to, does his own will. I also argue things like the false prophet claiming to be Elijah the prophet. A lot of the things that the false prophet does, we don't know a whole lot because he's mostly discussed in Revelation 13. But the things that he does is very interesting in terms of they are, for example, calling down fire from heaven is is something that Elijah did. And if you look at the the current Jewish expectations of of the return of the Messiah, it is connected absolutely to Elijah coming back first. There's many things in, I mean, for example, the, the Shema, which they were not the Shema, but the, uh, the prayer that they say at the end of every Sabbath, we are waiting for the Messiah, the return, uh, you know, come Elijah quickly with the Messiah in our day and this kinds of things. They leave out a cup for Messiah Passover and a chair at circumcision ceremonies. They're definitely waiting on Elijah to come back. And it would appear that the false prophet is in fact a false prophet a false Elijah, to be exact. Uh, And that since the false prophet and Elijah are supposed to do basically the same thing, that is, point to a guy. That's the job of the false prophet. That's the job of Elijah, both in in the form and spirit and power of Elijah with John the Baptist. And as I also believe the two witnesses, one of those witnesses may be Elijah as well, for similar reasons. In, In other words, Yes, he came back with John the Baptist, in a sense, the spirit and power of Elijah with John the Baptist as confirmed by the Lord. But there's also a sense that when Jesus returns, he will also again be preceded by Elijah. In fact, that verse in Malachi is talking about before the day of the Lord and things like that. I think that we can say with some certainty that uh, that one of the two witnesses will be Elijah too. And his one of his the two witnesses' jobs is also to point to the Messiah. In other words, the false prophet, his main goal in Revelation 13 is to, to point to the Antichrist and say he is the guy. So I think there's a lot of circumstantial evidence with the false prophet to suggest that he will be Elijah. And if that's true, then it's a very good argument that uh, the Antichrist will claim to be the Jewish Messiah. In Daniel 11.45, and also, it seems to suggest that the Antichrist's headquarters is in Jerusalem. Now, we all kind of get this for the most part. We When we read about the various things about the Antichrist, it all seems to have a very Jerusalem-centered context. But 11.45 says, He will plant the tents of his palace uh, between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. In other words, the way I read this is between the seas, that is the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, which Jerusalem is is at and in or beside or near the glorious holy mountain, that is the Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So I expect this to be, he's planning his 
headquarters, if you will, in Jerusalem. And I suspect that this is right at the midpoint, just before the abomination of desolation. Again, circumstantial evidence at best, uh, but I uh, go through a, a possible chronology that makes that even more interesting, I think. Also, things like Second Thessalonians 2, 4, he who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. I think this is a really interesting passage for a lot of reasons, and, and things like the abomination of desolation, uh, we could go into to this in some detail. But I think that he is, he's actually, a lot of people look at this this idea of him calling himself God in the temple of God as something to say, okay, this is definitely not what Jewish people are expecting, because the Jewish people do not believe at present that uh, the Messiah is God. They would argue somewhat uh, uh, passionately that the Messiah is going to be just a man and not God. And so what do we have here with this guy sitting in the temple at the midpoint calling himself uh, God? And I would suggest that this actually is arguing even stronger that he's carrying his messianic facade even further at this point. Because what he's essentially doing in Second Thessalonians 2.4 or all the other places that talk about the abomination of desolation is something that we Christians would agree with if this really was Jesus. Christians would be okay with the abomination of desolation if it was Jesus, because we know that the Messiah is God. So him declaring himself to be God is not a problem. Him sitting in the t- temple and requiring worship, we don't have a problem with that. We know the Messiah right. is supposed to sit in the temple and require worship from the world and declare himself to be God. So if you look at this as, as so all that really has to happen here is an explanation, a further explanation of the scriptures to the Jewish people at this point, which could be done by the you know Elijah the prophet or by the Antichrist himself. In other words, he is more doctrinally correct with his theology in Second Thessalonians two four than uh, than I believe previously in his his claim to be the Messiah. In my view. I could go on uh, if you want, but uh, there are some other areas which I think that the early church fathers, who unanimously agreed, more or less, I mean, they all agreed that the the Antichrist would claim to be the Jewish Messiah, with almost no exception. I mean, patristics is a hard thing. It's hard to say absolutely about uh, patristics, the study of the church fathers, because they wrote so much. And it's hard to look through everything. Right. But nowadays we do have uh, software and things uh, that can help us to to search at least keywords and find the places where they discuss the Antichrist. And in that study, I found no uh, no example of a church father that believed anything, at least uh, uh, pre-Nicene church fathers from the first 300 or so years. Uh, their theology and hermeneutics changed somewhat after that, and things got a little weirder. But the first guys all believed essentially the same thing. So in part, as I say in the preface of the book, is, is to reintroduce this idea into uh, the church's mainstream to at least discuss it. Right. And actually, that's a, that's a good place to sort of chime in here, because one of the, um, I guess, not a refutation, but it's more of a question that I, that I get asked when I, you know, I've been, when I discuss this with some people that I'm close with, the circles that I'm in, they will bring up, for example, neuro, you know, as, as someone that's a, a typological antichrist, and they'll say that, you know, every typology of the Antichrist in the Bible is a Gentile. I've gotten a list of several people from pre-Jewish Nimrod to the Pharaoh to the Assyrian, Nebuchadnezzar, Haman, Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, Alexander the Great, Titus of Rome, you know, there's a huge list. So what do you say to that as far as, you know, every instance of a type of Antichrist seems to be Gentile? Why would 
the Antichrist himself be Jewish right. in that well, sense? Then? Um, first of all, I'm not sure I would agree with that uh, premise. Um, I think that uh, types of Antichrist are all through Scripture, and one notable one uh, is is an interesting one. Not that I would make a big case of this, because I'm not sure if if this should be a hermeneutical idea that we should take too far anyway, but just to, to, to refute, or not refute, but to challenge the premise, I think that Solomon, in when, when he starts to go bad, he has the 666 talents of gold coming to him every year, and at that point, when you see that 60, 666, I don't want to make a big deal about it, but that is the marker where you start to see the parallels between what Solomon is doing, the bad stuff that he shouldn't be doing, getting horses to himself, getting gold, and all this stuff that starts to flow into Jerusalem, is a direct parallel. I mean, in some of the only places that you find the things that are mentioned in that section of Scripture where Solomon is on his way to building temples of Baal and everything else is a direct parallel to Revelation 17 and 18 in Mystery Babylon. And so there are places that you can say, well, that's, hey, they're, they're getting this, and Revel- John's getting this Revelation 17 and 18 stuff almost directly from this passage when, when all this this wealth and goods is flowing into Jerusalem. I mean, there's certain key passages. So I would say it's not it's not a rock-solid premise. But I would also say that the Antichrist kills a ton of Jewish people. The, the well, I'm not saying that he is going to you know, not kill Jewish people. You have to look at things like the what happens after the abomination of desolation. Everybody has to flee Judah if right. they're going to survive. Uh, and that is people that do not believe that he is who he says he is. Obviously, there's a huge amount of people that need to flee because they don't buy it. And you look at things like the two witnesses who their goal is to is to be in Jerusalem, pleading with people to not buy into this idea. And we would expect, number one, that a lot of them believe the, the testimony of the two witnesses. Some And obviously a lot of people don't as well. I think that you can actually get a fair number in Zechariah of, of the actual number of people that are killed. And that is uh, one-third of, of national Israel, I believe, will actually not uh, bow a knee to the Antichrist and will heed the warnings of the two witnesses. That leaves the other two-thirds who will. So in other words, when the Antichrist begins the persecution, after he declares that he now requires worship and that if you don't worship him, you will be killed, that genocide is really all-encompassing, and a, it will be the biggest holocaust, if you will. And that's one of the primary things of the types of Antichrist that we see. They they were, uh, uh, with the exception of Solomon, I suppose, the the um, they were very antagonistic towards the Jewish people. Right. But when you talk about types of Antichrist and say that, uh, they did X, Y, and Z, that therefore we must imply it to the Antichrist. It's difficult because the types of the Antichrist are from different places. Um, you know, we got some from Egypt and some from Assyria and some from Babylon, and, you know, all over the place, Tyre. And when we say, and there's a lot of theories out there that uh, that focus in on one and say, you know, Sennacherib was from Assyria, so therefore the Antichrist is from Assyria. Well, that, that just can't work because then you've got contradictions if you believe that hermeneutic. And what about, what about, Pharaoh, you know, what about the king of Tyre? Oh, do we, is the Antichrist from all of these places simultaneously simply because the types of the Antichrist were one thing? So it's a it's a difficult difficult thing to carry too far. Sure, yeah, and I can see that. Uh, I can just hear the the other side of it as well. They're all Gentile, and that's that's the key sort of uh, force behind this view. But moving on with, and you brought up something else. Um, uh, as far as the you know the the behavior towards the Jews, 
Um, and I'm sure you get this and you wrote this in your preface that you, you know, you're not anti-Semitic in any way, shape or form when you present this view. Um, but let me just read real quick what, uh, what a question uh, I got from uh, one of these guys and you may recognize his cadence, but I won't say who it is on air here, but this person said, alas, nigh, word for word, Chris White has derived his latest enlightenment on Jerusalem being the great whore of Babylon from none other than the Jesuits. Is he really who he th we think he is? And then he goes on and says, uh, add judging Jerusalem and refer to Jerusalem as we would to that of Washington, D.C. as America or Israel as, in essence, uh, and in eschatological fact, the final Babylon, it's a pretty uh, bold uh, presupposition there, but you and Chris White uh, apparently do not think that such a teaching can and or will be manipulated by individuals, surely not yourself, as ultimately anti-Semitic. In other words, you, Chris, really do not believe your teaching and that of the old Catholic, uh, old Catholics is anti-Semitic. And so I guess I think the question here is, uh, A, are you a Jesuit disinfo agent? And B, what do you say to those brethren who say that your view can be manipulated as uh, anti-Semitic? Okay, on the first point, I, I, the, the Vatican, if you go to see what the Vatican on their website thinks the Whore of Babylon is, they say it's Rome, first of all. Um, they don't say it's Catholic Rome. They say it was ancient pagan Rome. But that's their right. position. Now, a lot of Catholics do take the position that it's Jerusalem, but for different reasons. And that, that's that. what I'm trying to say is that what the, the Vatican wants you to believe is that it's ancient pagan Rome, not Jerusalem. So, if I am a Jesuit, I am a dissenting Jesuit in that regard. <laughs> the, but the issue that this can be construed as anti-Semitic, uh, first of all, as you said, I'm definitely not anti-Semitic. I'm the reverse of anti-Semitic. Um, this is, um, my record shows that, I mean, as far as... Uh, you, Everything that I've done for the past whatever years has been in support of Israel. I'm constantly doing things, uh, refutations of those kinds of ideas that are uh, uh, anti-Semitic and not true, the Khazar theory and the rest of it. Um, but anyhow, the idea that this can be used as anti-Semitic, well, um, I suppose it could. But then what would prevent you from saying, you know, this teaching that the Jewish, the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus to die we shouldn't teach that because that could be construed as anti-Semitic. You know, does that mean that you shouldn't teach it because it could? I mean, wh where do where do we draw the line in, in terms of if the Bible says it, then it then it's something we need to pay attention to. Right. In, in other words, I, I think that anti-Semitism will. And first of all, I don't think this theory uh, breeds anti-Semitism. I think it should breed uh, sympathy b because this is a deception that's going to be extremely hard for Jewish people to resist. Because of stuff that Satan has been doing in terms of the, the way that he's setting this up, it's, it's a very good deception. And I think it's, it's geared towards Christians as well. But, uh, but no, I don't think that it, it's, uh, I think it's in terms of it being anti-Semitic, I just don't see it. I see that uh, uh, you've got to teach the Bible the way it, it, it uh, you know, what it's saying. And you shouldn't, for example, say that, uh, that the Sanhedrin didn't, you know, uh, have that counsel or whatever, because that could be construed as, as anti-Semitic just because it could. It could, but it uh, in the right hands, it, it never is. People that are anti-Semitic are going to be anti-Semitic regardless of whatever there is they're, they're teaching. Right. They're going to look for stuff. So, Sure. And, and it seems, you know, that the world itself is increasingly sort of anti-Semitic, especially recently with all the stuff happening in the Middle East and whatnot. But on that point, how does the Antichrist 
win over the world is as far as you know because that's a it's a premise that i know that you held and i definitely held that view that he's this this you know he's going to come as this peace uh peacemaker and he's going to you know rally the the world and stuff like that and you sort of challenge that whole premise but what do you say to that as far as this idea that how how is the antichrist going to in effect uh you know capture the attention of the whole world and and to the point where he's going to uh, people are going to worship him, you know, in that sense, you know, the, with the anti-Semitic bent of the whole world. How does that flip? Right. It's a really good question. One that I've struggled with a lot. Um, how is it that it, it seems it seems clear that there's some kind of, uh, you know, me, at least with the media, an agenda to get people all riled up about Israel? <clears throat> On one sense, I would say that that this that that kind of thing could just be a fallen, unsaved world thing. It could be just that. People in the media don't like Jews for their own personal reasons because, you know, it might be just something that they are promoting. But I, I take the idea that, that Satan is also encouraging it to a degree as well. Uh, so how would I explain? What could Satan's motives be for for that? And how could that fit into this idea? Well, first of all, I do think it's important to recognize that the Antichrist doesn't seem to care too much about what people think about him in in terms of... Um, he is, as I mentioned, destroying a bunch of people. Everybody's mad at the Antichrist in, in the Bible. I mean, in terms, at first, at least, he is, he is being attacked by the king of the north. He's being attacked by the king of the south. Then news from the, the north and the east will trouble him, and he goes out and completely crushes all of them. So he's already made three parts of the compass completely angry at him. And the only reason that they <laughs> did anything, it describes them later, you know, kind of, giving them him all their gold and stuff like that, they are completely subdued. But they're subdued in a very ancient way. That is, when a guy that has unbelievable military strength completely destroys you, you have no choice but to be a part of his new deal. Uh, and I would also suggest that what the Antichrist does in terms of his Mark of the Beast system, which prevents people from buying and selling unless they have it, uh, as well as we see the the other re- repercussions for not joining, that is beheadings and things like that, then what? Then I would submit that a great deal of people um, submit to the Antichrist out of very old school reasons. They want to buy and sell. They want to keep their family fed. They don't want to die. They don't want to be tortured and that kind of thing. And so I think there's a there's a, a part of that. But I also want to to say that I think. A key to this is recognizing that the Antichrist, I believe, is going to focus his deception not on the unsaved world, not on making the unsaved world even more unsaved by worshiping him. I mean, that will be a part of it. Ultimately, I do think people will uh, be, as it says in Revelation, made drunk by the, the fierceness of the fornication of people towards the Antichrist. They're going to... They're going to be drawn in into it for probably some of the very regular reasons. The the fact that all these things are happening and it seems to be fulfilling things. I think that the Ark of the Covenant could play a role when it's found, if it is found. Um, but the so sort of that kind of stuff could draw a lot of people in. But my point is that if I believe Jesus is telling us that this is that false pro- prophets and false Christs are going to come and deceive. If possible, even the elect. Get that uh, verse right. Deceive, if possible, the elect. He's saying, essentially, he's coming after the elect with this deception and and false wonders of the the Christ and prophets. He is, I believe, focused mostly on getting Christians to apostatize. And I think that we we don't 
factor that in enough with the deception of the Antichrist. The way that I've always viewed it up until very recently is that the Antichrist was going to do something to make the Hindus stop being Hindus and make the, you know, the Islam stop being Islam and everybody just change their religion. And I think there's going to be a certain aspect of that too. But I think that the, the key area is that that Jesus is warning us about is that in the end times, there's going to be a great apostasy from Christianity. That's the, the, the key issue. And I think that by doing what I'm claiming that he's doing, what the Bible is, I believe, telling us that he is doing, which is making it seem as if Jesus has come back. Jesus has fought the war of Armageddon. Jesus has defeated the Antichrist. Jesus is now ruling from Jerusalem in the Messianic age, which I believe is what all these things are describing. That that is a deception. And what what if he does claim to be Jesus and he does all the things that the Jews wanted wanted to, him to do? Destroy the enemies of Israel. He, you know he's he's rebuilt the the temple and all this stuff. So the Jews essentially are now uh, ostensibly worshiping Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And I believe that is a major deception that Christians themselves are going to have a hard time uh, resisting. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely. And I, I can almost see. You know, with uh, dominionist theology that's that's becoming prevalent, and just the emergent church and all that buying into it, you know, in effect, right? And I and, and therefore the deception of of the the anti-Semitism and stuff in the world, getting back to that, has a reverse psychology sort of angle. If we as Christians notice what we notice, and I know there's lots of different views in Israel and stuff like that and what's going on, but I do think that there is this sort of double speak that's going on that we all notice. You know, there is there is some illogical nature to the anti-Semitism that is, is, is with this whole thing. And everybody is, is really, really mad at Israel. And we as Christians see that kind of like we do with evolution or whatever. We're like, it's so obvious that this isn't true. You know, what, what is, is wrong with the world? Are they just crazy? I mean, the, what, what is happening? We see it like one of those issues. And that kind of bolsters... In, in a sense, our, our justification of it. So what happens if we are firmly rooted in the idea that we're all waiting on this big, something big and bad and terrible to happen in Islam, a complete unification of Islam that comes against Israel, and we're all, oh my goodness, here it is, you know, they finally united and they're finally all going to go dis- destroy Israel, and we're like, this has to be the end times. But we would definitely believe it was the end times if a guy claiming to be Jesus completely stopped that threat, destroyed those enemies of Israel, like I believe it says exactly the Antichrist will do, then what what is going to prevent us from saying, hey, the end times just happened. Jesus is back. This is all done. And I think that if if we hold too too strongly to this reverse psychology idea that, that we know this is all the end times and we know that we're all just waiting for Islam to attack Israel and Israel to defeat them and that's when Jesus is going to come back and that'll be the Battle of Armageddon, then that is a major danger for deceiving Christians. And uh, as I mentioned in a recent podcast, I think that with believing that the, the Islamic world is the Antichrist, it kind of goes back to us believing that, you know, Christians aren't in danger whatsoever from being deceived by the Antichrist. We don't even, that's not even on our agenda to worry about, is deceptions from Antichrist, because we know good and well that Islam isn't true, and we're not going to convert to Islam, uh, you know, when they're cutting the heads off people and killing children and stuff like that. It's like, there's not one Christian that's going to be like, yeah, that, that I, I think that now that I've seen the beheadings... <laughs> And the, the killings, I think this just might be the real thing. I think I'm going to go for that. 
So the deception of the Antichrist makes no sense in that regard. And I would also argue, as I do in many different ways in the book, that the idea that the Antichrist is a Syrian, that he is going to be uh, an Islamic Antichrist, is just not true and is based totally on uh, on very difficult uh, to uh, difficult passages. Well, the passages I don't believe are difficult, but the way that they interpret them. And then also a lot of Islamic eschatology that has been promoted recently and how to interpret that. But that's another story. So you're telling me that Obama is not the Antichrist or Obama is Jewish? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a good that's a good point. You know, that's the YouTube mentality. Basically, I, I've been been really difficult with you know posting a lot of this stuff on on YouTube. I just basically stopped. I was going to do more videos. I've got two in the can right now that I don't even think I'm going to post because the the comments on it are just so demoralizing in the sense that uh, uh, I, we're just so in terms of the, how prophecy is interpreted in the in the really pop world the, the world that just knows that a armageddon is coming one day and an antichrist is coming one day and that's about all that they know it's uh it's pretty pretty lame out there with that for sure just real quick and this this was a long time ago this was seems like forever ago now but um you mentioned uh doing sacrifices on the temple mount and how that would affect the Muslim community, but in in my opinion, I mean, even the secular world would, I can't imagine that happening in like not having an army of PETA warriors yeah. storming Israel and like, I mean, then the, that becoming the great PETA slash Israel war of whatever. Right. And I, and I agree with that totally. I've even made that point with PETA before. Uh, that that would just increase anti-Semitism and things like that, um, and and I think that's correct. The only thing that I would say about that is that if that is really happening, now I don't think the Ark of the Covenant is necessary in the true Millennial Temple, but uh, the Jews do believe it's necessary for for the Temple. And if you and a lot of Christians don't even know that uh, the 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 Ark of the Covenant is not expected to be in the real Millennial Temple. Nevertheless, it's a major issue that pe- that if it was found. Uh, that would change things. It would. It would be sort of a. I mean, that's. There's a reason why Steven Spielberg started out the the Indiana Jones thing with that being what he found, because that would be a major issue. I mean, most of the Muslim world doesn't even believe that any of that's true. In fact, most of the scholarly world, you know, is very hesitant to even say that Solomon's kingdom even existed. So, finding the Ark of the Covenant with two tablets of stone in it or whatever else is uh, is going to be a a pretty big deal in terms of of changing people's minds. Again, I go back to the idea of, and, and I don't. I think only to a degree. As I mentioned, I think that the the Antichrist has a very systematic way of getting people on board that has more to do uh, with military might and and persuasion in terms of of the mark of the beast system and the executions. But um, but I do think that as Revelation seventeen tells us about mystery Babylon uh, and eighteen, that the world is made drunk by the fierceness of her fornication. She is fornicating with the Antichrist. She is essentially the, the cheerleader of the Antichrist. She's writing the Antichrist in Revelation 18, saying that she has found her husband, she has found her king. And she is really happy with this idea that she's, she's promoting the Antichrist. I believe the picture is there that she's kind of a harlot high priest. She's, a, she's promoting the Antichrist as if he's God. And the world is drawn in or made drunk by the passion, the fierceness of her fornication. 
So I think there is, and you also have to take into account that if the false prophet at this point is calling down fire from heaven and all the rest of it, it on one hand, the world could look at that as, as the, you know, uh, some kind of weird trick or whatever and be skeptical either way. And I think that there is a category the way the Antichrist deals with those people who are just skeptical and not going to go along with it. But on the other side of the equation, there's going to be a lot of people that are drawn into the truthfulness of that. I think that if we study Satan's devices and the way that he works with most cults and uh, other deceptions that he has out there, the old adage, you know, a little bit of, of truth is what you need in any, in any lie, or a lot of truth. The more truth, the better, really. The rat poison right. analogy and the rest. And I think that there is no greater truth in the world. And I think the world even kind of understands that there's something about the Jews, something real. Even though they may hate them or whatever, you know, I, I'm reminded of the Romans. Uh, one of the things that the big bolstering cases for uh, you know, Titus and his father Vespasian, particularly about uh, him being emperor after Nero, I believe, was that uh, the Jews had a prophecy about him saying that he was going to be the emperor. And he actually kind of took that and made it one of his campaign ideas. You know, even the Jews think that I'm supposed to be the emperor or whatnot. So it's in their prophecies. And we see we see other places like that. So my point is, is that the truest thing in the world is that Jesus really will come back. He really, well, he, he really will sit in the temple, and he really will be God, and he really will get worship, and he really will do all these things. So the Antichrist is playing on the greatest truth ever that has its own innate power, its own innate convincing power. So despite the fact that, uh, for example, sacrifices in, in the politically correct world would be against that, we do have to at least accept that that's essentially what's going to happen in the millennium, too. Um, but, uh, again, I think it's just an, uh, the truth power that it has, regardless of what everybody believes or, or whatever about it. I'm just, uh, uh, the Antichrist and his, his military might and whatever is just such a formidable thing that nobody challenges him. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. As far as the, the wars of Antichrist, you talk about, you know, Daniel eleven forty through 45 and some of the translations and especially Daniel eleven forty one. It talks about how he will invade the beautiful land, which is Israel. And so, like, why why the discrepancy there in some of the translations? Is that just the NIV, the the Illuminati translation of of the Bible that's you know trying to deceive us, or is that like how come there are certain passages or certain interpretations that say that he's going to actually invade it? Uh, of course, the majority is that you know he's just going to enter the beautiful land or Israel. Um, but, you know, I just wanted to see what your thoughts are on that. Well, I mean, it, uh, first of all, I don't have any problem with him being enter or invade. I think that the context uh, tells us what he's doing when he goes, if you just take, uh, I'm looking at the different translations, comparing him here, he shall enter, he shall come into, he shall enter also, he shall enter also, he shall enter, uh, he will enter, he will also enter, he shall enter. Uh, so far, every version that I have here on eSword says that he will enter, but I'm sure that there must be one that says he, he invades as well. But in any, yeah, there's a there's a couple. Yeah. In, in any case, um, it says this: uh, He shall come into the glorious land, and and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hands: Edom, Moab, and the main part of the Ammonites. So when we when we see him going into the glorious land, and I argue that just before this in Daniel 11, he has just got done destroying what is arguably definitely the is the enemies of israel i would argue the king of the north is a coalition of arab countries which it has been all throughout uh daniel 11 
and indeed the king of the south, nobody contests, is Egypt. These are Arab nations, which he totally destroys right before he enters the glorious land. And then when he enters the glorious land, it says, we don't know anything about it except that when he is there, these will be delivered out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the children of Ammon. Now, Edom, Moab, and the children of Ammon are all in Jordan. They're all Arab countries. They are escaping from his hand, yes, but that means that they were being pursued by him. So, the only real information we have about Daniel 11, 40, 40 through 41, is that he was at least pursuing Edom, Moab, and the children of Ammon. And I make the case that what he's trying to do here is fulfill Zephaniah 2. Zephaniah 2 says that when the Messiah comes back, not only will he destroy the enemies of Israel, but he will make a concerted effort when he goes into Israel. Now, keep in mind, both Edom, Moab, and Ammon were all part of greater Israel, like in the Davidic kingdom. They were, though they were very antagonistic towards David and, and the rest of it, they were still conquered by David, even though they hated him. Uh, so, during that time, they were a part of Israel. And I do think that the Antichrist is, at this time, going to try to fulfill the the true Israel borders, okay? So, so this is around the midpoint when, uh, and I, I make a case for that, but the point is, in order to do that, he needs to basically fulfill Zephaniah 2, which is to go into Israel, defeat the coastlands, which are controlled by Gaza and, uh, you know, the, the, in Gaza, and uh, some of the other places that are currently Palestinian-controlled. And if indeed, I think that the goal here is to look like the Messiah, which means that he has to create a greater Israel, not the Israel that we're, we see these days, then that necessarily means trying to conquer Edom, Moab, Ammon, and as well as a ton of other places that are a part of, of greater Israel or Davidic Israel that are not currently held. So I interpret him entering the glorious land. Even if you said it was invade the glorious land, which I would argue probably is better to say enter just based on uh, consensus, but nevertheless, I'm sure they have good arguments if, they, if there's in some of them. It still is, there is a lot of stuff in the glorious land, even today as we currently see it, the glorious land is, is, is full of pockets of enemies of Israel. In other words, this is a further attempt of the Antichrist to appear as if he is fulfilling Messianic prophecy, in this case, specifically Zephaniah 2. Um, and I think that the tech, you can't argue too much against that. If, he, if, he's, if he's fighting Edom, Moab, and Ammon, and he's an Is, and he's front, you know, Islamic guy, then what's he doing, doing that for? You know? And I think it's just as consistent with this than we see in the previous verses, where he's also killing what we today know of as Arab nations. So it's all Arab nations that we know of in these verses. Right. Now, as briefly as you can, without going into the, the gritty details, can you present your position that the Mystery Babylon is the end-time city of Jerusalem? Sure. Okay, so the, it's a good question. Let me just pull it up so I can get the, um, get the basics here. I would say that there are a number of things that we would go into. First of all, um, it says that the blood of the prophets and it was found in her. And I would argue that, first of all, in Scripture, the only place that we see the prophets ever being killed is in Jerusalem. In fact, I would say that Jesus tells us specifically that it is impossible for any prophets to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Um, I know that's a, a pretty serious claim, but he says 
in Luke 13, 31, the same day there came some, certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish outside of Jerusalem. Jesus' argument against you should leave Jerusalem because they're going to kill you is, I can't leave Jerusalem because that's where the prophets are killed. And then he reiterates the point saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets. Indeed, even when he says that the, the blood of the slain will be found in Jerusalem is something that it says in Revelation uh, 18.24. Now here we would say, now we have to... Uh, encompass Mystery Babylon to be a much bigger thing. If the, all the blood of the slain on earth is found in this city, that's that can't just be Jerusalem. And I would normally agree with you if it wasn't for Jesus, who says in Matthew 23, 34-35, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you, Jerusalem, may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of all of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berkiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And and other and so that's that's one argument, just a, a kind of quick proof text thing. But there are so many different things. I think there's ninety characteristics of Mystery Babylon, and every one of them is unique things that can only apply apply to Jerusalem. Even the idea of being a harlot. Jerusalem is called a harlot hundreds of times in Scripture because of her going after other gods and worshiping them, also killing, uh, you know, killing righteous people and stuff. But primarily, a spiritual harlot because she has uh, abandoned God for uh, false gods, and in this case, she is committing the ultimate adultery. She is following the worst of all. She is committing the worst harlotry of all in following the Antichrist and being essentially his cheer, her his cheerleader. Uh, I believe we could go into so many different things. Uh, the specifics, for example, the merchants that are sold to Mystery Babylon. There's a, a verse or two that's describing several items that are sold to Mystery Babylon, and most times people go through and say these are just indicative of of uh, uh, you know wealth or something kind of allegorical or whatever. But if you take each word and do a word study on each of those things, they're often, in most cases, extremely rare things that are only found in the setting up of the temple system and the sacrifices that are needed to to make the system function. Uh, what she is wearing, as I mentioned, are very unique things that only apply to the high priest. Even the name on her forehead, the, the high priest had a name on his forehead too, except it read holiness to the Lord. Hers reads mystery ba- Babylon, etc. Um, anyway, I could go on to, to a lot of the different things there, but I do believe that... Uh, that it's very clear what it is. Essentially, it's a picture of Jerusalem, essentially the inhabitants of Jerusalem sitting on top of the Antichrist, um, being, being as it's supposed to be, the, the capital city of the world, both in the real end times, and the real millennium, and in the fake one, as we see that that's where the Antichrist sets up his capital city, that because he is also trying to, to fulfill the idea, which is, I believe, what Mr. Babylon is a picture of, the world streaming to Jerusalem in order to worship the Antichrist in the temple, particularly the image of the beast. Uh, but the idea is that the world is essentially coming to worship him, particularly with gold, silver, and precious stones, thereby making the merchants extremely rich, etc., etc., etc. But yeah, it's a, it's a pretty detailed study uh, about that. Yeah, and I actually... I've become very familiar with all the argumentation just because I've been going back and forth with uh, with my circles. But, you know, I really think some of the, the argumentation is so hard to get around, especially the items. Uh, you mentioned it, but they're just so 
I don't know. It's just really hard to to go around some of that stuff. Um, you know, the the wine, oil, fl- fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep being you know the things used for the daily sacrifices. That goes back to Exodus twenty nine and all that stuff. It's quite irrefutable in my opinion. But I do get the opposite end. And let me read you just uh, another you know uh, back and forth we had. And and this was one person that they believe you know um, the final Babylon is. Uh, is the United States, and I think specifically New York. But here's what they said. They said, um, as a purely practical matter, the final Babylon described in Scripture is a military and economic monster. As we see in Daniel, Isaiah, Revelation, and Ezekiel, prophetic Babylon marches around the earth conquering. It talks about a worldwide empire, a, a world superpower, hardly little Israel, uh, as powerful as it may be, but strictly for its own defense in the region, not for worldwide conquest. How would a few million people carry that off anyway? Uh, It should seem obvious that Israel is focused on survival, not worldwide conquest. Uh, And then he goes on. Then we come to Revelation 18 and the description of the world's consumer nations that all the world gets wealthy from because of her trade by sea. Again, Israel just doesn't have the size and scale implied in these passages. It doesn't have the reputation nor the fact of being the great consumer nation. Only America has a worldwide economic empire so vast, so all-encompassing, reaching into almost every nation and corporation in the world. Um, and he goes on, you know, following World War One and Two and the Cold War and the military and economic influence and the IMF and the World Bank and all that stuff. Now, how would you respond to that? Is that just um, a, a victim of trying to fit uh, a current uh, sort of geopolitical, uh, you know, staging to Bible prophecy? And, and uh, you know, or is it, you know, is it just assuming that, you know, things will remain the same as things start to unfold as far as geopolitics and stuff is concerned? Yeah, I think that you pretty much hit the nail on the head. Essentially, it's the same problem that the church has had in, in all the different versions of Mystery Babylon that they've tried to to promote over the, the, the years. That problem is seeing that whatever is going on right now is definitely the end time. So all we have to do to figure out who Mystery Babylon is, is to look who can be considered the capital city of the world right now. And then and then say, well, Israel couldn't be considered the capital city of the world right now, so therefore it must be New York or whatever else that they propose. As opposed to seeing it as, this is what the Bible says will happen in the future. You know, it doesn't have to be right now. We don't, And we can trust the, the, what the Bible is saying is going to be true. The Antichrist really will make for all. I mean, even the the uh, a glance of of how this is supposed to come about with the Antichrist sitting in the temple. Obviously, you know, very very centered on Jerusalem, sitting in the temple is where he decides to to you know accept worship for the the remainder of his stay. But I would also argue you could you have explicit references such as uh, what I mentioned before about his planting the the tents of his tabernacle in essentially Jerusalem between the seas and the holy mountain. So the his palace tents. The, the point is, is that the Bible tells us that he is going to set up Jerusalem as the capital city of the world. A vi- the very prophecy that Jesus, you know, in, well, it's in Isaiah that says that that's what it's going to be like in the real millennium. Jesus really is going to set up the capital city of the world there. So the Antichrist is faking that here. And so if the Antichrist does what the Bible is saying that he will do, then then, of course, that's going to be the capital city of the world. A guy who can defeat anybody in, in war, a guy who, who nobody challenges, who does his own will, takes whatever he wants, and then sets up his capital in Jerusalem, yeah, you bet it's going to be a big deal. And so uh, so I don't see any problem with it as long as we look at it in terms of what the Bible says will happen as opposed to what is happening at this any given moment in time. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely agree with you on that. And 
It's a challenging thing though. You know, how do you approach those conversations when they're so, uh, I, I don't want to say stuck in their way, but in some sense they are in that, you know, they've taken traditional views or pop views as you call them. And they've really, you know, you run with it and it's hard to, to shake out of that. What do you think is the best approach to sort of, um, you know, get them to at least consider some of these arguments? Because I, again, I think like some of the mystery Babylon stuff you go through is, is airtight. I mean, you cannot, it's really hard to refute some of that. Guns is really convinced here. I'm convinced I'm, I'm buying in. Well, well, in any case, I think that the, I think you, it's very difficult. In fact, I've kind of come to the conclusion that the best that you can do is, is do the best that you can do, put it out there in whatever form that it is. And the people that uh, are interested can, can, uh, I, I do think you need to respond um, to to certain things, especially if it's a if it's a, a really good criticism, but there are so many different things going on right now with a lot of pe- people, you know, having very peculiar views that is like just limited to them. You know, those people are the hardest people to convince of anything. If they have a peculiar view about the end times that nobody else believes, nobody else has seen, that's like a very difficult thing to deal with because they have their identity now is that they are the one true person who has figured out the end times and I am sent by God to do this. You can't convince that person of anything. So so you have to kind of pick and choose who is who's out there that, that's got a good argument that is that is open and that's who I engage with. This is a particular difficult uh, topic, of course, um, because it has a lot of other baggage and, and, and stuff that goes along with it in addition to just the standard, you know, exposition of a, of a passage. But my, my personal view is that I, it, I've done a lot of stuff, you guys know, that have made a lot of enemies and just different. I mean, no matter what, I've seemed to gravitate towards those things that every, makes everybody mad. You know, doing something <laughs> about the Sabbath is no way to make friends, you know, or doing something about any of the things that are out there. Just it just makes people mad. But this particular thing is one of those things that just makes people even more mad. And it's made, it's made me just kind of uh, think that if it's right, then the future will tell it. But, it's, but there's only so much of that I can do. You know, I can le- one of the reasons to get this down is to get it off my chest. And if there's any truth or validity to it, it will become you know, more mainstream down the road if this stuff starts to happen. I ultimately wrote this that if it was true, big if... If the thesis was true, then it would give um, it would give the future people that are going to do more on this and expand it more and correct any mistakes that I make, give them something to to go from, um, because it certainly needs more work. But uh, there's just not anything out there right now, and what what is out there about it is mostly wrong and for the wrong reasons and a lot of that stuff. Right now. If the Antichrist presents himself as the Jewish Messiah and Mystery Babylon is the eschatological Jerusalem, where do the 144,000 fit into this? The 144,000 are a unique group that are said to be sealed from the, the Day of the Lord judgments. They, I would submit that you can make a strong case that they are sealed directly after the rapture. Um, and they are, they are Mormons. <laughs> right. Or Job's Witnesses, I think, is the, the definite. Right, right. Uh, yeah. um, well, there are 12,000, I believe, from each tribe. They are definitely said to be Jewish people because they are you know, named as such. Later on, we see the 144,000 in a very unique context. They, are on, they have followed Jesus to the Mount of Olives, where he is declaring essentially victory before the chronology, chronology essentially says so. I mean, he's, they're on the Mount of Olives looking down. 
at Jerusalem right before, I believe, the, the bold judgment happens when uh, just about the last bold judgment happens when he has to split the Mount of Olives, as Zechariah tells us, for the purpose of, of getting them out of the way uh, and giving them a passage to escape the appending bold judgment. But I'm getting off the subject here. What I think that they are is not the representative of every single Jew that will be saved during the day of the Lord, because I, I, I think that Zechariah tells us explicitly that they aren't. When I mentioned that one-third of national Israel will make it through the day of the Lord, sometimes called the time of Jacob's trouble, when the trumpets and bowls start, um, the Jewish people is, is looked at in Scripture as a refining time for them. The time of Jacob's trouble will be a time to essentially purify national Israel, those one-third that do make it out alive. Uh, and then the, in addition to the, the one third that make it out alive, there is this enigmatic 144,000 who were chosen for very interesting reasons, their virginity and different things like that. Um, and they are sealed throughout the day of the Lord judgments and seem to have a very close relationship with the Lord during that time. People have expanded on some issues that might be going on there, Basra and some other issues, but I'm not 100% sure about all that. So what are they? I believe that they are a kind of, uh, uh, set apart priest class for the millennial reign. If you read Ezekiel 40 through 48, you will see that when Jesus, you know, accomplishes the, the, you know, the, the battle of Armageddon and all that, and he sets up the millennial kingdom, the real one, he, Ezekiel just tells us a lot of detail about it. Uh, the, the, the Israel is once again separated by their tribes in a very unique way, the sort of parallel kingdoms that uh, encompass the entire entirety of Israel. And in the middle is this sort of holy place called Yahweh Shema, where the uh, the temple is and, and the Levites are, are, are on either side of it. And so, in other words, there is a reinstatement of a national Israel in which there seems to be representatives of each of those tribes. And I would, rec- I would say that probably what's happening there is that those 144,000 from each tribe are essentially the representatives, or if you will, kind of like a priest class, although that's not a, technically a good term since they won't be priests. The Levites will only be priests. But a, a representative of each of those tribes that will be necessary for the millennial kingdom. I'm willing to be wrong about that, but that is my uh, take on it as, as of now. Right. All right. Well, Gons and I recently posted our apocalypse update. Yow! And, um, in which we talk about a lot of things going on now. We got a lot of trouble going over there now, which has got a lot of people freaked out. I mean, it's, it's horrible, horrible stuff. But do you see as any of this fitting into your particular view in a, in a sense of Bible prophecy? Or is this just a continuation of just some just horrible things that go on besides that? Well, uh, normally I don't, uh, and I, I've kind of just did a podcast about this saying that uh, normally I don't look at a lot of the news stuff and try to comment upon it with Bible prophecy because I think that it, it, there's a tendency to see everything that has ever happened in, as being Bible prophecy. But I think that with the current situation, um, it's worthy of looking at. at, at, at I, I think it's a wait-and-see situation. For example, the ISIS or Islamic State IS thing uh, is a definite wait-and-see thing for me because it just seems like... Uh, 
it's not really matching up with anything. Even the Islamic Antichrist people are, are saying is supposed to happen. They are a small, you know, a relatively small group. They're a big group and well, well funded and well organized. But it remains to be seen if they're going to have any success with any of the neighbors. I mean, all they're surrounded by actual real armies with planes and missiles and stuff. Um, and it is Syria and Iraq were not exactly difficult to to defeat with guerrilla warfare. So it's going to be it remains to be seen if this wall. Uh, you know, anything will come of that or whatever. Uh, in addition to that, the Israel-Palestinian conflict, I, I see this just like it was two years ago or the two years before that or the two years before that when this exact same scenario happened um, where every, the world was super mad at Israel. I mean, surely we all remember that. What was it? Uh, I think that was just not too long ago, 2007, I think it was a Lebanon thing, but then even before that. And I remember and being on the air, you know, in all of those times and saying essentially the same thing, what is going on with the world? The world's all protesting and, and loving the Palestinians. And what about Israel and they're being attacked? We did all exactly the same thing. So I need, it, I need to wait and see with this thing too, because it could be just like that in a month, you know, it'll be another ceasefire that lasts two years and everybody forgets about it and whatever. But like anything in the Middle East, it could all escalate at any given time because it is so volatile. There's so many alliance issues and, and other apocalyptic views that are there that could turn on a dime. And so we need to always be careful to watch it. My current theory about it is that uh, the biggest danger that Christians would have is that if everything went down exactly the way that uh, that uh, the the main prophecy teachers are saying if it all like seemed to be coming down like that, it would be the most dangerous thing for Christians. For example, if Iran hooked up with uh, Russia, which we all have been waiting on that forever to happen, and they've just recently signed you know, a marginal deal of, of some stuff with trade and whatnot. And so that's like, oh my goodness, that means Gog Magog's coming and the rest of it. And I just started looking at the news more closely and essentially saying, if... That stuff happened exactly the way that, every, that Christians were expecting it to happen, and they all marched on Israel at some point down in the future and you know, tried to attack it, and Russia got together with Iran and, and some Muslim horde or whatever, then we would be sitting ducks for believing that that would be, this is it, you know, and it would be a brilliant move uh, if the Antichrist was, in fact, planning on deceiving Christians into believing that he had destroyed those biblical uh, bad guys, and now, you know... Come to me, I have just done the Battle of Armageddon and, and done all these things. So I, I'm looking at it more from that angle. What if it's all a big deception um, <clears throat> right now than anything that I could say for certain is definitely having to do with the end times? Though, I think that it's also important to keep an eye on this idea of the where the real Antichrist comes from, this uh, 11 king situation of which he subdues three of them and all that kind of stuff. I've still got my eyes peeled for that, and so far, I, without doing any funny business or forcing something into something else, I can't see anything that, that could be explained as that what we actually should be looking for in terms of all this. The only thing we really can know for you know, certain in terms of a pre, uh, pre-emptive uh, kind of knowing is this, this place that the Antichrist comes from, which I would submit is probably not in existence yet. And probably will wait. Have to wait a little bit down the road until more um, more changes are made with borders and things like that. Possibly because of globalization and stuff like that. But we'll have to wait and see. As far as I'm concerned, right now. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So, just in general, world events don't get you to jump up and start screaming for the, you know, 
that the end is nigh. Right. Got it. <laughs> That's very level-headed of you, Christopher. <laughs> well, I'm not saying that they couldn't, uh, but uh, but nothing that's happened yet has. Got it. That's a fair position. And um, a couple more questions here, and we'll let you go. But one of the things that, that um, again, that, that same old group uh, that wanted to know, uh, who, in your opinion, are the two olive trees of Revelation 11? Well, um, some people connect that with the two witnesses. And, you know, I'm not really sure. Uh, I think that they, you know, it was they stand before the Lord, and you can actually do some interesting things with certain prophets that have said that exact same phrase. They they stood before the Lord, Elijah being one. And if in fact that is talking about the two witnesses, and the question is really who are the two witnesses? But I, I'm I'm going to refrain from commenting too much on the on the on um, on Zechariah because. I don't really know. I've been actually thinking about doing a, a thorough study of Zechariah because I feel I don't know it as well as I should. That's fair. And studying studying it in that way is is the best way I know to, to really get my head around it. But the the two witnesses, I believe, are actually probably Moses and Elijah. I actually ran across something the other day, and I am totally blanking as to where it was. I, it was in the um, it was in the Old Testament, perhaps. Um, Maybe Ezekiel. I'm not sure, but but it it's interesting because of the acts of the two witnesses. What they do with uh, first of all, as I mentioned, one of the two witnesses is calling down. Uh, you know, can stop the rain and can start the rain, which is something that Elijah did. And the other witness, or what, rather, the other things that they the two witnesses can do are the specific things that Moses did. Uh, I think it's uh, turning the sea. Uh, into the blood and and pestilence with the different things. I can't remember exactly. Forgive me for that. But but that that's a pretty interesting thing. And one of the reasons that people see Moses and Elijah being the two witnesses, in addition to the Mount of Tr- Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah showing up with that conference with Jesus. Some people see that as as uh, a circumstantial evidence that uh, would make that seem possible. Um, but there's this there's this verse that's really interesting, talking about what uh, God is going to do. Uh, to Israel in the Old Testament. And it's the exact same phrasing, it's the exact same things that he says he's going to do with the two witnesses. Uh, and while that doesn't have anything to do with their identity, I thought it was a really interesting thing. And of course, it means nothing because I can't find the verse or, or think of the verse right now. But uh, in any case, to answer the question, and I think the two witnesses probably are going to be Moses and Elijah, though I would not be surprised if they're just two new guys right. uh, that, that are not anything to do with those guys. But from what we can sort of glean in terms of the things that they're doing, they are conspicuously the same uh, 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 miracles that Elijah and Moses were doing. Sure, yeah. And actually, I'm sure you're familiar with Peter Goodgame's rendition of the two witnesses. And I believe, I don't remember if one of them was Moses or Elijah, but I know the other one he felt was Zerubbabel, based on some passages in Zechariah. I don't, I can't recall all of the, uh, the nuances with that, but maybe that's for a, a future episode. Yeah. I'd be interested in, in, in hearing that uh, argumentation. I'm certainly not dogmatic one way or the other about the identity of the two witnesses. So I'd, I'd be interested. In that. Right. I think, I think it's uh, red moon rising. He goes through that, but you know, just as a final question regarding, uh, you know, we're going <laughs> to, we can't have a canary cry radio without bringing in some kind of fringy, crazy thing. So, you know, maybe this is just me just really, really badly wanting to maintain this 
alien extraterrestrial agenda as part of this whole thing, okay? So tell me if I'm just completely off base, but I just want to run this by you and, um, you know, see if we can reconcile these two, uh, <laughs> these two views. Uh, <laughs> um, so, okay. I feel like a lame... Lame, uh, so I want bad. it so bad to be no, an alien. No, no, I, I, I agree with you. I, I, I have sent, uh, definitely sentimental uh, uh, to the idea. So let's see what okay, you got. So, <laughs> so, all right. First off, you got Daniel 1138, right? It talks about the god of fortresses. And, um, you know, David Flynn has pointed out that that phrase, god of fortresses, in the Hebrew, Allah Mahozim or Eloah Moaz, uh, he does some, I'm not exactly sure how he came to this because I've been trying to connect it, but he connects it to the Phoenician god Melkart, which is, you know, a, a synonymous with Mars or the god of war, uh, sometimes translated king of fortresses. So as far as the, the deception goes, could it be possible that, you know, the ancient alien thing somehow plays a role in, you know, verifying, quote unquote, the, the whole Jewish tradition and this idea of Judaism being confirmed in a way that's that's a little bit different, and I bring this up because you know I was reading Jim Mars, uh, his his recent book uh, Occulted History, and you know these are secular guys, right? Uh, you know another guy that's talked about some of this is Joseph P. Farrell, you know brilliant researchers, but they don't really hold the the biblical view. But they see Yahweh as kind of like this at, at best like a like a low level extraterrestrial god, you know, and they really get their whole cosmology and everything from the Sumerian tablets and everything else. Well, you know, one of the things Jim Mars said was that, you know, his, his refutation for Yahweh, kind of making fun of Yahweh in the Old Testament, he goes, burnt offerings of animals and the pleasant aroma and all this stuff, it doesn't paint the picture of the God of the universe, but rather, you know, like an alien who's just really into, you know, smelling good animals and that kind of thing. Do you, do you think there's something there that perhaps can play a role in maybe... And I know you said earlier that, you know, most of it is focused on deceiving the church and, and, and you know, the, the chosen people. But as far as enticing the rest of the world to, to come worship, do you think there's a possibility that some of that can come into play to, uh, you know, as a sort of a crazy whirlwind of, you know, <laughs> Judaism of the old, you know, the Old Testament Jewish sort of uh, theology being confirmed through some kind of uh, disclosure event of, Aliens. <laughs> right. Well, I think that, uh, first of all, I think that it's valid to say that the deception about the, the alien deception, and, you know, we, we see so many times that the, the so-called aliens are saying things that are against uh, Jesus and the people that are for aliens are very anti-Christian. And, and it's a deception that's out there, ancient aliens included, that is making people uh, reject Christianity, reject God. It's very focused towards that end. Um, but I would see, I would first of all just say that I look at I look at the deception that we see with the alien thing as just kind of another one of Satan's devices to that he uses to get certain people that have certain predispositions to reject Christianity in the same way that he does with Islam, Mormons, any ridiculous cult. You know, he comes up with something completely new. I mean, it's Islam is as far from Raelianism as you can get, right? But he uses both of them. For his purposes, essentially right. to to get to get people away from Christianity, but the but as far as getting the world, I, I do think that the idea of getting the world to sort of love the Antichrist is the view that that made me um, gravitate towards the alien deception view 
because it was the as far as I could tell the best way to get the world to love and 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 willingly embrace the antichrist um and it was mostly because of that that I wanted to 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 say it and 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 say more about it and do more studies about it and stuff like that so but when i when I see the antichrist being so antagonistic towards everybody hating the antichrist trying to to kill him but not succeeding. There, it does it does cause problems with that though it could work out in both ways there I suppose um, as far as the the scripture that you mentioned in support of the idea which in Daniel when he says the God of fortresses there are a lot of people that see that God of fortresses as a number of things um, including pagan gods I think you mentioned one other people see it as like uh, Ishtar I think and some other female goddesses and so on uh, so there's that view that I think people ultimately are saying, okay, here it says the God of Fortresses. Let's just look at who, which pagan god could be considered the God of Fortresses, and then we'll know who um, the Antichrist's uh, god is. And I think that's a, a one way to do it and certainly worthy of checking out. But the issue that I have with that is that if we compare that in Daniel with what it says in Revelation 13 about the god who he is essentially worshiping, uh, that gives him his power. In this case, if we read it, you know, in a very uh, mundane way, uh, it does seem to be about warfare. That's certainly the context of the issue. The fortresses essentially being the concept of, of a god who helps to destroy fortresses, a god who of war. And if we look at Revelation 13, we see in Revelation 13 that it's the, the dragon, a clear reference to Satan, who gives him his power, his seat, and his great authority. So he is empowered, if you will, by the dragon. And, it, and again, in that context, it's saying, and, you know, and they worshiped the dragon who gave power to the beast, and they worshiped the beast saying, who is un, alike unto the beast, who is able to make war with him. So again, we have this idea of, of the dragon giving the beast his power, making the people worship the beast because of the war issue. So if I connected those two verses, I would I would have to say that the god of fortresses that he's worshipping with gold, silver, and precious stones, if you will, at least in, in, in private, I think you can make that case that he's, that he's two-faced about this, that he is worshipping Satan, that Satan is his god of fortresses, and Satan is the one that empowers him to make war with people and give him that, those military victories that are so crucial to his rise to power. So... Uh, I again am okay with seeing that either way, but I don't see necessarily connection to to the idea uh, of that requiring alien intervention. Now, as far as it being a deception, an alien uh, deception of some point of some kind that could that could endorse or or, or whatever the the Jewish Antichrist idea, that's of course possible. If something happened uh, like that, I mean, the aliens could come back and say anything, right? I mean, they could say the Bible isn't true. The Bible was true. They could say anything that they want. They, they're certainly quoted in these channeling sessions and abduction things of saying very mutually exclusive ideas. Uh, some of them are probably lies. Some of those are just demons. Some of them are a combination of both, I guess. So, um, as far as I see it, they could come back and say virtually anything, um, and so that's always a possibility, and I have always left that open as a possibility of aliens having something to do with this. But as far as finding scriptures to to um, prove it scripturally, I, I feel it still has to remain, at least in my mind, as one more possibility that could happen in terms of the Bible doesn't give us all the information that we would like, so therefore there are certain things that are that speculation is is needed and warranted. 
Cool. I was hoping for like the bombshell verse that you've never talked about with the alien <laughs> Nephilim return, the one Antichrist keeping from all of us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> keeping from Gons at least. I've known it the whole time. I just haven't been telling him. Um. Okay. Well, very cool. Well, Gons, sorry. Maybe next time, buddy. Yeah. Well, it's all good. Now, I still think, I mean, I th- still think those ideas are, are necessary to keep in mind, and I, I definitely keep them in mind, too. I mean, there's a lot of things that I am guaranteeing that I am wrong about this, that uh, that will play out completely different than I or anybody else has envisioned. And so we need to be prepared and, and speculating about it to a certain degree, for sure. And that includes considering the alien idea, as it would be a very, very uh, big and and deception that would make a lot of people change overnight their views so it's it's important for sure all right chris well this has been fantastic before we start wrapping up is there anything that you just have burning on your heart that you want to make sure that everybody listens to our billions of listeners (laughs) uh not really um uh, most of the stuff is available uh for free um, on my website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. I podcasted pretty much the whole book, and it's there for free. Uh, if you wanted another other kind of form, there is, it's available too, but you don't really have to. It's all there uh, on BibleProphecyTalk.com. And as far as uh, anything else, um, just continuing to, right now, podcast and stuff like that, and, 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 and don't really have any big plans. There's some stuff I want to do about uh, just Christian discipleship and us getting more uh, focused on the Lord and uh, and praying and doing all the things that are that help us to to get our joy and uh, and zeal uh, up and so that's my focus right now. I'm considering doing some stuff about uh, creation, evolution, and all that stuff. Looking to I guess make some more enemies, but uh, I was just <laughs> just had some serious mad stuff about that for my last podcast. So so that's where I'm going. Just trying to stir up trouble, I guess. All right. Sounds good. Well, there you go, everybody. Chris White with his new book, False Christ. Will the Antichrist claim to be the Jewish Messiah? Chris, one more time. Thanks a lot for coming on the show, buddy. Thanks, guys. It's always a pleasure. Well, there you have it, folks. Very wonderful interview with Mr. Chris White, friend of the show. If you're listening on iTunes or Stitcher or any of those things, make sure to give us a thumbs up or some stars or, you know, even leave a little review. Me and Gans read those reviews every day when we wake up. We read them all before we go to bed. We just bask in them. Yep. Um, Should we tell them about some of the, the things we got planned? Should we hint at it? Okay, that's enough. Okay, go on. There you go. There's your hint. Things are planned. Okay, where was I? Oh, yeah. Reviews. Stars. Go do it now. Only takes a second. And uh, helps us out. Helps the show. Also, if you're on Facebook, you can uh, follow the Canary Cry Radio page or become our friend. And we can share things together and have fun playing Facebook Farmville. Um, Is everything a question? I I guess. And uh, yeah, like us on Facebook. That's a cool thing to do. A little community getting together there. Or if you're into supporting Canary Cry Radio financially, we've got our brand new shiny awesome website that's just sitting up there at canarycryradio.com. And we've got a support tab. 
you know, you can figure it all out. That's awesome. You're awesome. You're all awesome. And, and I will say, those of you who have been supporting, thank you so much. And we thanks, thanks, thanks. We'll have something thanks, special. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Stop making promises as we move on. No, we're gonna make God, this promise. Basil. You make too many promises. And, and you break my uh, heart. And so that's why you want to jump on board and um, maybe be a monthly supporter because. Basil is going to do the um, flippity dance on his hands. <laughs> flippity dance on his hands. Yup. Oh, speaking of Basil doing things. <laughs> well, I, I was going to ask a question, but I guess it doesn't really count when nobody can talk back to me. Oh, I just. Well, I hope I, ask the question, and then they can they can respond. Well, I was just going to say we were we were doing the Iron Show the other day. That's right. And helping uh, Johnny Iron get some money for him to put new teeth in his head because he can't talk right now. Although I kind of like the way he sounds without teeth, but I think just for his own sake, he needs some teeth. And so there's Operation Ironchoppers.com. Operation Ironchoppers.com. And as of this recording, we only need another $780 to get to the point where he can purchase a couple yeah. of new choppers for his mouth so we can uh, get him back yeah. on his proverbial podcast radio feet. And, um, yeah. you know, more, whole more, than, more than a couple choppers. That's a lot of choppers he gets. So, yeah, go do that. Also, you know, we're just a big old family here on the podcast thing i don't know <laughs> world <laughs> uh, and i will say i will say i'll go on record and say that uh natalina did not impress oh. uh <laughs> <laughs> natalina looks like basil's sticking around everybody <laughs> and if you have no idea what we're talking about uh go find um basil taking over our little thing that we did for the Iron Show. It was it was kind of a disaster, like a slow motion disaster. Oh, it was an awesome disaster. <laughs> Beautiful disaster. Everybody who tuned in and knows what we're talking about is just so sad that it's over. They just wanted it to last <laughs> their whole lives. But anyways. And, and I, I do want to apologize. If you were, if you are listening to this and you were one of those people that called in and didn't get to talk to us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Johnny Iron went ahead and um, did not put like, there was like 20 people in the queue with phone calls waiting to speak to us and, and he didn't pipe them through. Yeah. Um, bad, bad producer, Johnny. Come Iron. on, Johnny. Let the people have a voice. All right. right. All right. Okay. Well, I think we're uh, just about going to wrap it up. So there you go, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of Canary Crow Radio. Make sure to tune in next time. But until then, think outside the cage. <laughs>